Uh, I'm going to let you be seated at this time, and uh, I'm not going to start off tonight with a scripture. Um, I, I, I brought this box of Girl Scout cookies with me, and um, I just thought I would do something nice for somebody and give it away. I, I bought it uh, from Sister Samantha Arnold, via Sister Keisha Arnold, and um, the thing about it is that I got home, and for days I didn't see these, these cookies. They were, they were gone. Every time I go to look for them, they were gone. And the kids have been tearing them up. How many, anybody here like Thin Mints? Anybody who just, anybody want to grab this box of Thin Mints? I just want to give you this gift. Is that Brother Dennis back there? Hey, man, get the, give him that box of Thin Mints. In fact, Brother David, why don't, why don't you pass that back to him? I want Brother Dennis to open it up. because He's excited, isn't he? Amen. I didn't plan to do all this. I, I, I did bring the box of cookies. Go ahead and open that up, Brother Dennis, and tell us, tell us what's inside. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I wouldn't be here. I'd have been gone with that money, brother. <laughs> I, I think there might be, I mean, it looks, it looks like it's a pretty good gift, but I, I was... It's just a seed. It's a crumb. That's all that's inside. Because I got to the box of cookies today, and they're gone, right? They've been taken. I pull the box out, and it's empty. It's hollow. How frustrating. Now, I remember when I was a kid going up to the refrigerator and getting, now, y'all don't shoot me for this. Is all right if we just be real tonight? As my mom, she didn't buy the big gallons of milk. She'd buy a couple cartons at a time. Anybody remember milk cartons? Maybe your picture was on one at one time or the other. <laughs> and I would get the milk carton and drink straight out of the milk carton. Now, I know some of you mamas are already ready to give a whooping. But we would drink the milk and put the carton back in the refrigerator. Anybody ever done this? We just have confession time right now. The empty carton back in, and I remember... Just about every time that that happened, mom would come back to the refrigerator. And it might have been 10 minutes later, it might have been two hours later. And we would hear from the kitchen, kids! And we said, oh, mom found the milk. Because she was looking for milk, but all she got was emptiness. Just like that box of cookies, it looked like it was supposed to look. It seemed like she might have been able to pull it out and and pour herself a glass of milk for what reason I don't know other than cereal milk is useless to me but mom loved milk she loved to have it in her cereal and she would get so upset with us when we would leave the empty carton in and I don't believe it was just because of the irresponsibility of not throwing it in the trash it was the frustration of thinking you were getting one thing but in reality getting another and so in this series we're talking about what would Jesus undo? Pastor, last week he talked about how Jesus would undo spiritual indifference. People who just are not moved anymore and people who just don't care all that much anymore and are not all that invested anymore. And Jesus, if he were here today, he would undo that. He would untie that knot. He would remove that from our life. But in this second lesson, what I want to talk to you about is that Jesus if he were here, what would Jesus undo? He would undo hollow worship. 
If Jesus were right here, and I believe he is here. I'll just state that. I believe he is here. But if he could undo some things in the church, one of the things that he would undo is empty and hollow worship. It looks like worship. It sounds like worship. It seems like worship. But when you get into it, there's nothing really there. There's no substance to it at all. It's hollow worship. Now, as I was reading today, I came across this story uh, or, or this just factoid that I thought was pretty neat because in the Greek islands um, lies the home of Hippocrates, the, the father of modern medicine. And um, may, maybe you recognize his name. Some of you in the medical field have taken the Hippocratic Oath because uh, he, he forever impacted the uh, mindset of how we treat patients and what doctors are really for and how they approach medicine. But in his home uh, area where there is a museum set up uh, to where he had lived and, and, and it's not actually his house, but it's a museum representing his house, there is an old olive tree supposedly dating from his time. It's 2,400 years old. And the trunk of the tree is huge, and, and the branches, I looked up a picture of it, and the branches spread all over, and it looks like a magnificent olive tree. But the inside of it is hollow. There's a thick bark on the outside, but underneath there's really not much to it, and all these long branches are supported by sturdy wooden poles every few feet. Because it is so old and it has grown hollow on the inside, it, it might have an occasional leaf here and there and it, it might produce uh, one or two olives a year, but in the fields around it are younger olive trees that are more solid, that are smaller, that far outproduce that 2,400-year-old olive tree. The strong, healthy trees with narrow trunks cover are covered with a thick canopy of leaves and masses of olives can be harvested from them each year. But the tree of Hippocrates, it, it can be called an olive tree by nature. If you look at it, you would say it's an olive tree. It has all the characteristics of an olive tree. All the identifying factors of an olive tree. But its purpose has long since dried up and its production has long since gone away. Why? Because through time it grew hollow on the inside and it doesn't have what is necessary to produce olives anymore. Now, this is just totally uh, out, of, out of my thinking. It's not biblical, but how, how interesting that uh, olive trees are, are where olives come from and olive oil is one of the essential components in the anointing oil in the Old Testament. And so as it grows more hollow, it produces less anointing, less fruitful, and it no longer serves its purpose. In fact, here's the interesting thing is tourists will line up to look at this ancient relic. And though it has a link to some purposeful past, its pro productivity went away a long time ago because through time it got hollowed out. And, and as I read that, I began to relate it to where we are today as the church because many Christians and even churches have 
the potential to become like the tree of Hippocrates. The form is there. The function is there on some level. Um, But they are merely a shell of what they once were. They really don't have the depth and the substance that they once had. And many churches and Christians can get there. The form is there, but the function is not. And they have stopped reproducing and are satisfied just being big or having some noble history. But all the while, they're hollow inside. And if, if we're not careful, time will hollow out our worship. Time will cause us to forget where we came from and what God did for us. The songs we sing and the sermons we preach can grow hollow. The acts of service we do, they can look like everything they're supposed to, just like a box of Girl Scout cookies. I'm going to have to really get Brother Dennis because he's probably disappointed now. (laughs) He's all right. Thank the Lord. I was worried. (laughs) Amen. Fried chicken. I'll buy you some fried chicken, Brother Dennis. Isn't it true that our worship can become that way? It looks like worship. It has the form and the function, but it isn't producing. And the acts that we do are empty inside. It can look like it's supposed to look, but underneath the surface, it has become empty and unproductive. And Jesus had much to say on the topic of worship that had become ritualistic and empty. And it came in the form of these run-ins that he kept having with the Pharisees because of their misguided and empty worship. Constantly, we find Jesus rebuking and and, uh, condemning some of the behavior and the acts of the Pharisees. Now, if you don't know about the Pharisees, they're members of a religious party that placed an emphasis on following legal traditions, man-made traditions that were not ascribed to the Bible, but to the traditions of the fathers. It wasn't a devotion to the things that God had spoken so much as it was a devotion to the way that we've always done things. And we begin to see it play out in Matthew chapter 15. It's a great passage of scripture. Matthew 15, 1 and 2 uh, says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law come to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they ask, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They were mad. Jesus, you're supposed to be a religious leader, and you're breaking the traditions. The traditions. And they're they're in a huff. You've seen people act this way. They get get a, a little uptight, a little wound up about things, and they come rushing in on Jesus. You're not measuring up to our standard because our traditions are being broken. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, what you have to understand about the Pharisees is that they were obsessed with with, with ceremonial cleanliness. Now, being clean is a good thing, but they're not talking about physical cleanliness. They're not talking about washing your hands. You know, the signs you see on the door when you come out, employees must wash hands. I'm glad they gave the rest of us a break. We don't have to. Only if you work there. But employees must wash hands. It's, that's about cleanliness. That's about not spreading germs and diseases. If We ought to all be educated from the last year on cleanliness, right? Physical cleanliness because we got we to gotta use hand sanitizer. That stuff was like liquid gold for a while. Pastor even had a Lysol dealer at one point. I'm telling on him. 
He had a lady that would call him and hook him up when they had Lysol in stock at Walmart. See, y'all don't know how to roll like Pastor Roll. <laughs> the man knows how to live. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I laughed and laughed because I said he's the only man I've ever met that had a Lysol dealer. It wasn't really about physical cleanliness. They were obsessed with ceremonial cleanliness. Because when you are ceremonial, uh, ceremonially clean, you are now eligible to worship at the house of God in the Old Testament. You're now eligible to come and make sacrifice and to come and to bring your offering to the house of God. You're eligible for communion with God if you, if you were ceremonially clean. You see, two devout Jews... There were two categories for everything. There was the clean and there was the unclean. There were clean animals and there were unclean animals. I bet you can name one, a pig. There were lambs and pigs, clean, unclean. There were uh, uh, clean things, clean food and unclean food. Clean, uh, clean items and unclean items. There were clean people and unclean people. We still got those, but we're, that they were talking in a different term. But being unclean meant that you could not approach God. And so out of their devotion was born this tradition that if it's wrong to be unclean, we've got to wash. We've got to make sure that nothing unclean comes into the presence of God. And so on one hand, it's admirable that they wanted to uphold the holiness of God. But on the other hand, they created a whole system of traditions that began to leave behind the purpose for which God had created those things. And being unclean, it, it wasn't just uh, something that was contained to you. If, if you were unclean, it was transferable. If you were an unclean person and you touched an un another person who was clean, you made them unclean. It was like the cooties in fifth grade. You know, Sally has cooties. Don't let her touch you. <laughs> and we would run away because don't let the cooties get on you. These were spiritual cooties in their eyes. Is if you touched something and you were unclean or you touched something that was unclean, you became unclean as well. And so it, it was transferable. If you had skin disease, you were unclean. I, I remember when I was a kid, they, we had the Messiah. We called it Messiah. I think it was King of Kings here, the Easter drama that we had every year. And I always would laugh at the scene because the lepers, they'd all cover up their face uh, when, the, when the lepers would come in, the, the scene of the, the uh, ten lepers. And they would all, all the people, the townspeople would cover up their face and say, unclean, lepers, unclean. And so as kids, we would go around and do that to each other. We'd see somebody, we'd say, unclean. And, and it became a game to us. But that was the reality. If you had a skin disease, you were unclean. In fact, the lepers... Their garments were considered unclean. The house that they lived in had to be considered unclean until it was cleansed by a priest. Nobody else could go in there without becoming unclean. It was transferable. It spread to everything. Anything that they touched was also unclean. If you had a bodily discharge, as gross as that is, then, then you were unclean. You had to go through ceremonially cleansing. Uh, um, if you touched a dead body, you're unclean. And if you came in contact with an unclean animal, a pig or a mouse, you were unclean. And so, if a mouse were to touch a cup, it made the cup unclean. Things could be unclean. And the person who drank from the unclean cup, they were unclean. 
right? And anybody who touched the person who drank from the cup, they were unclean. And so it spread rather quickly through a community. They were always concerned that they were not worthy or eligible to worship. And that's admirable on one hand. But on the other hand, they created this system to deal with it, to deal with the uncleanness, this ritual or tradition that, uh, that they came up with. And it was an elaborate cere uh, ceremony. Um, they, they had to take a minimum, there was a minimum amount of water, and it was called a quarter of a log. Now, that amount equals about an eggshell and a half, that they had to take that amount of water, and they poured it on both hands. First, they would start out, and they would pour it over their hands. They would have somebody pour it over their hands with their fingers up, like the church in the steeple, you know. They, they, they poured it over their hands, and the water would run down. The water was clean, and it would carry away the uncleanness and drip to the ground, but um, then they would turn their hands the other way, upside down, and, and pour it down their wrists, and the water would run down their wrists so that if they had touched something unclean, now they were cleansed because the water was now unclean. It could not touch their body, so they did it in a certain way in order to make sure that they were clean. They would rub their fists and their hands with the waters, and and even strict Jews, they didn't just do it before their meals. They did it in between courses of the meal. Between the fried chicken and the cookies, right? Between the main course and dessert, they had to cleanse themselves. And so what they found themselves doing all of the time is cleansing themselves. And these Pharisees, they see that Jesus and his boys are not doing it like they do it. And so they say, how do you let them break your or our traditions they are unclean not worthy of God not worthy of worship these are supposed to be spiritual men and so these Pharisees approach because his disciples aren't washing according to tradition and Jesus literally unleashes on them in this passage Matthew 15 3 he answered and said to them why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition they thought they had caught Jesus, but Jesus comes right back at them and he says this, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, that's the commandment of God, honor thy father and mother. He said, But you say, whoever says to his mother or father, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. And this is what he says, Then he need not honor his mother or father. So he said this, he said, Thus... You have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. They were using these traditions to ignore the word of God. God's word said, honor your father and mother. That literally meant to take care of them in their old age. To honor the, the years of their life that they had given to raise you. And you repaid that back. That's what honor thy mother and thy father means to the Jews. And he says what they're doing is they're skirting around their God-given responsibility to take care of mom and dad by saying, no, I'm giving it to God. And often in the Pharisaical party, it was public shows because we know from the scene of the widow's might, it was often a public show of giving this massive gift. So what they're doing is they're ignoring the commandment of God and choosing to follow after this tradition which exalts themselves rather than obeying the command of God. And Jesus said, through your traditions, you make the commandment of God of no effect. 
They were making the commandment of God of no effect because they had lost the heart of God along the way. They had started emphasizing traditions over God's truth, and the result of it was ineffective religion. They had exalted their religious activity over God's original intent, and they were doing the right things but they were doing them for the wrong reasons. There's nothing wrong with giving an offering. But there is something wrong with using it as a personal means to escape the command of God. And so they are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And in the process, they find themselves working against what God really desired from them. And so he said, you make the commandment of God of no effect. Somebody say no effect. No impact. Ineffective religion. Jesus took issue with them because the Pharisees had a habit of emphasizing outward image over inner substance. As long as they looked like they were devout, and as long as they were doing things that seemed devout, and as long as they were following the traditions and everybody thought that they were devout and close to God, then, then all was okay. But Jesus had an issue that underneath it all, there was a different intent and a different motive and there wasn't the substance that they were advertising was underneath. Their traditions made them seem as if they're devoted, but underneath it was just a hollow routine. And so their worship became through time form without power. It became ritual without relationship. It became activity without authenticity. And so they were not treating people right. They were obsessing over the externals. They were following all of these man-made traditions. And if you had asked the people at the temple, that was a good, God-fearing Pharisee. But when God looked at them, he saw beneath the surface of what they were doing, beyond their actions to the heart of their need. And he said this in verse 7. He said, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He said, they're saying all the right things. They haven't said anything out of sorts or out of turn. He said, they're honoring me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he said, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He said, they worship me in vain. Now, that, that word vain means literally without purpose or empty. Vanity is emptiness. And so, Jesus says their worship, in effect, is hollow. It looks like worship. Sounds like worship. Seems like worship, but it's, it's hollow. It's not what it's advertised to be. And in fact, if you line the two up next to each other, one might be worshiping and the other might have hollow worship. And you might never be able to tell the difference by the naked eye. With their lips, they're saying all the right things, but their hearts, he says, are empty. They're doing all the right actions. They're going to church. They're giving offering. They're singing songs. They're standing up for truth. They're doing everything that, that a Christian person should do. But somewhere along the way, Jesus recognizes that they've left their hearts behind. And their devotion to God has become just an empty shell. It looked like it's supposed to look on the outside, but it has nothing deeper on the inside. And, and, and it's just like my mom when she would grab that carton of milk expecting to get one thing, but opening it up and trying to pour it out and nothing comes out of it. 
because it has nothing to offer. It is of no use to her, and it is frustrating because it's not what it's supposed to be. It's just empty on the inside. And Jesus was saying that's how our worship can become to God if we're not careful. That we come Sunday after Sunday and we sing songs. And we do all the things that we're supposed to do. We lift our hands. We close our eyes. We, we go through all of the motions of everything that we're supposed to. But what God is really interested in is, is your heart in it. It's not just did you show up to this place to do this thing. It's not did you fulfill the tradition and your custom. It's not, it's not all of that. But worship really isn't about what the style of music is. It's about the condition of the heart. It's not about whether uh, how loud you sing. Some sing beautifully. This praise team, they got, we got all kinds of people who sing beautifully. Some of you out there can't sing a lick, and we don't want you to try to sing up here. Because <laughs> that's not what God gave you. But let me tell you, God is no more pleased with a beautiful singer than he is with somebody who can't sing a note on tune. Because it's not about the beauty, it's not about the form, it's about what's on the inside. It's about the inner substance. And let me tell you, if you can't string two notes together, but you've got a heart that loves him, and a heart that praises him, and a heart that worships him, I want to tell you, God is pleased with the real thing. Listen, we'll talk about it in a minute. The Bible says dance before the Lord. Some can dance better than others can dance. But he, he said that we should dance in celebration. He didn't give you a pass because you don't have rhythm. <laughs> he didn't give you a pass because you, you can't sing two notes together. God desires worship. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4 that God is seeking worshipers, true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so God is not interested in us going through the form uh, and, and the motions of church. He's not interested in us showing up and looking like we're doing the right things, but he wants to know what's really underneath the surface. Do you really love me? Do you really are you really thankful for what I've done for you? Are you really grateful? Do you really see how great and glorious that I am? You know, the subject of worship can get, it can get spicy sometimes. People don't agree on how we all should worship, you know. Um, I remember trying to play a song for my mom and dad. It was a DC Talk song. <laughs> and it always comes back to DC Talk for me. I don't know why. I tried to play them a song, and I, there was a drum riff in it, and I was in the drums at that time. I said, listen to that. Isn't that so cool? My mom and dad looked back at me, and they're like, we don't really like that, son. We don't really like that. And I thought, who wouldn't like this? This is awesome. This is, I mean, that's Toby Mac, man. How do you not like them? And that's just not really our thing. And listen, how many of you ever noticed there's some war that goes on around worship? Some believe that if it ain't Southern Gospel, it doesn't count. Jesus don't even hear it. Unless it's got, um, uh, unless it's got a steel guitar, Jesus ain't even paying attention. You ain't going to get him out of bed unless, uh, unless there's a little twang to it. And, that, and some people, they love Southern Gospel, and that's their thing, right? If, if the singer's not wearing a bolo and a vest, oh, man, it's not even worship. 
But then on the other side, you got people who think that if it's not a worship band and they're not wearing skinny jeans and backwards ball caps on and blue jean jackets, that it's really not worship. And you got to have seven guitar players and six synthesizer players, uh, and, and they all play three notes during the song, and that's what worship looks like. That's what it's really like. Now, this is my jam right here. This is it. I've lived long enough to remember when they used to complain that new songs didn't have enough words. I've heard pastors say this. They call them 7-Eleven songs. Seven words, 11 times. I remember that. I remember when those came along and they said, man, these 7-Eleven songs, man, it's not worship. That ain't worship. Now, I've, come, I've lived long enough to where all the new songs, some people don't like them because they got too many words. And they, man, how do we know these songs? You got too many words. And listen. Here's what I've come to tell you, is that worship isn't about the style of music. We do all kinds of styles here. It's not about the style of the song, but it's about the condition of the heart. Listen, whether it's the anchor holds or whatever the latest Kirk Franklin song, God is not caught up in what the style is, but he wants to know, are my people really worshiping from the heart? Are they really bringing their praise from a place of sincerity? Are they really willing to express and indulge themselves in my presence? That's what matters to God. God is not interested in hollow worship. God cares about the condition of the heart. See, worship transcends time and culture. And we get caught up in conversations about uh, the tradition surrounding worship, but God is paying attention to what's underneath it all and, and, and what's, what's underneath the surface. What, what kind of heart did you bring to worship? I love the song that we sing, I want to bring a heart that seeks you first. Uh, I want to bring you more than, uh, than, than anything else that I have in this life. I want to I come to you, God, with the best that I have. That's what God cares about. And whether it's not your particular jam or not, or it's your particular style or not, should not impact how you worship. I know we all have our favorites, and we feel the Holy Ghost a little bit more. I do when Brother Roger sings. I feel him a little bit more. He starts hitting on some old roots that I've got. But understand this, God cares deeply about what's behind it and what's underneath it. Imagine your kids coming to express on Mother's and Father's Day, coming to express to you their love for you, and they hand make a card. How many of you ever had this happen? The younger they are, the worse they look. <laughs> Unless you got just a, a phenomenal, talented kid. I don't believe that anybody has ever taken one of those Mother's and Father's Day cards and hung it up in the Louvre in France. It's not beautiful art. In fact, it may not even be your favorite color. There may have been no thought put into it whatsoever, just whatever crayon was nearest. And, and I've gotten notes like that to say, I love you, Dad. And you know what I didn't do? I didn't look at the handwriting and be like, man, I don't accept this. Go back and do it again. I don't do that. Because when it comes from the heart, it doesn't matter to a loving parent. The style 
the form, the fashion. How be, some, sometimes we need some ugly praise. Because you may not be the world's best dancer, but you still might have a reason to dance. You may not be the world's greatest singer, but you've got a reason to sing. You may not have all the talent and ability that this great praise team has, but you've got a reason to rejoice and to worship God. And so God, he's not standing back saying, it's not good enough for me. God is saying, if it's heartfelt worship, I want it in my church. God, what would he undo? What would Jesus undo? He would undo empty and hollow worship. Where we come and the music's perfect and, and, and everything goes without a hitch, but nobody's moved. And, and we, sometimes we sing songs. And you should see your faces. That's the advantage of sitting up here. You should see your faces. I want to bring you. Uh, or I can't remember that song. I keep trying to sing that song. I couldn't. But... Rejoice. The, song, the one we sang, he made the difference in my life. Love that song. We recorded that song when I was in Bible college. So when they started playing that, I, the, the horns hit and all that. And I said, ooh, I feel that. I love that. But some of us were like, he made the difference. Looking around. And the words are there. But the hearts are there. What pleases God? Is it just being in the building, doing the thing that you're supposed to do? No. No, God is looking for a heart that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is looking for a church that will worship. Listen, when a church starts to worship, things begin to change. You know this because you've been in this. If you're here tonight, I, I pray that you've been in one of these services where we couldn't even go any further because the power and the presence of God was brought in by worship. The old way of saying is when the praises go up, the glory comes down. God desires worship. And when the church begins to connect in their hearts with God, liberation, deliverance steps into the room. Things begin to change. Healing begins to happen. Salvation begins to happen. People are baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost without a preacher having to say a word. Why? Because God inhabits the praises of His people. When somebody, maybe they can't sing too, no right but when they start really worshiping from the depths of their soul his spirit moves in and he says I'm going to be in the midst of that I want to be a part of that I'm going to move on behalf of a church that will worship what would Jesus undo he would undo ritualistic boring dry dead unfeeling unmoved church services he would undo worship services where you are so tired because you stayed all night watching Netflix and you can't get two thoughts together. He would undo all that. And he would put people in the seat of passion. He would put them in a place where they've been looking forward to going to the house of God because they get to celebrate what God has done in their life. What would Jesus undo? He would undo hollow worship. He would undo it. And so... We're unique as, as Pentecostals. I remember as a kid bringing a, a friend to church with me. He was raised Catholic. And uh, it wasn't even a wild service. But I remember we were sitting there on the third row where my mom always sat. And the, the service leader told everybody, I want everybody across this room to raise their hands. And literally the whole building, everybody's hands. It was a packed house that day. Everybody's hands went up. And my friend reached over and he bumped me on the elbow. He said, what are they all reaching for? I had never even thought of it being a weird thing. 
I said, I think they're reaching for God. <laughs> he said, oh, okay. You know, and he went on like he understood. But we, we worship differently. How do we express our worship? How, how do we do that? Listen, sometimes we bow in reverence to God. Sometimes we bow in reverence. There are services where the glory is so heavy and thick that standing up will not do. And so sometimes we hit our knees. Why? Because it's biblical. Psalm chapter 95 says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so in this service on our Sunday worship, we ought to see people kneeling down from time to time and bowing their knees in reverent submission, saying to a holy God that I recognize who you are. I recognize that I'm not worthy of you. And so I give you my praise by bowing on my knees. How do we express our worship? Sometimes we lift our hands in adoration. It's not a weird thing. He thought it was weird. He bumped me on the other. He didn't know what was going on. He looked like he had seen an alien. I mean, he said, what? What are they all reaching for? But sometimes we raise our hands. We lift our hands in adoration. It's not a weird thing. It's a Bible thing. Paul said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. What does it mean? In our culture, let me give you just two quick examples. What does it mean when we lift our hands? In our culture, someone's got a gun to you, you say, I surrender. <laughs> Look, I give everything up. I'm not fighting against you. I'm submitting to you. And so when we lift our hands, it's a sign of surrender to God. When you see people lifting their hands in worship, they're saying, God, we didn't come here for what we have on the agenda. We came here to submit and surrender to you. We want to be used by you. We want to be consumed by you. We want, we want your presence in this place. And the other thing it means is some of you might have done it when your Super Bowl pick won the other night. Raise your hands in what? Victory. That's the other thing we raise our hands for, is sometimes when you've been fighting all week and the devil has been on you and you've been fighting anxiety and depression and you walk in and you feel the presence of God, sometimes you've got to throw up your hands and say, I declare victory over everything that's come against me. I declare victory over my family. I declare victory over my mind. Somebody ought to throw your hands in the air right now and just say, Lord, we declare victory in this place. We lift up holy hands in the presence of a holy God. I'm almost done, don't worry. Sometimes we dance in celebration. I laughed a few, a few months ago, somebody said this. They said, you know, the Bible never said dancing had to look like a seizure. But sometimes we Pentecostals, we think it ain't dancing if, if it don't look like they got shocked by lightning. <laughs> Listen, Sister Ruthie's not here. She's got a whole lot more grace when she dances than when I dance. She knows how to do it. I love, you know, one of our favorite pastimes when we were kids is talking about how everybody in the church danced because everybody had a signature move. And listen, if you don't have a signature move, what are you doing wrong? <laughs> you got to have a signature move. <laughs> I love Brother Glass. I see you out there. My kids love it when Brother Glass comes across the front because they know we have in church. 
Because he got that signature move when he scoots across the front. Sometimes we come out of our seats and we didn't just come to sing a ritualistic song. We didn't come to just sing four verses in a chorus and sit back down. Sometimes we've got to let our praise out and we've got to express our worship from the bottom of our heart. Listen, when Brother Glass dances, he ain't dancing because it's a show. He ain't dancing to impress you, but it's because God's spirit has got a hold of him and he begins to dance in celebration of the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. We dance in celebration. Listen, there, there's a liberation. A, a while back we sang a song here, Freedom. And if you, if you don't dance in that song, you're doing it wrong. Because it's fast. you got to dance. But in that service, I begin to dance and jump. And I realized that in the middle of that, something lifted up off of me. And I began to feel totally different than when I walked in. It was as if a hundred pounds was taken off of my shoulders. Because what we don't understand, sometimes we look back and laugh and say, I'm never going to be like those people. I'm never going to do that. Be careful saying that because God will get you. <laughs> we, 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 we say, oh man, I hope I'm bringing guests. I hope they're not crazy today. I hope it don't get too wild today. But understand this. That, when people began to dance in celebration, there is a liberation. David, when he danced before the ark of the Lord, the Bible said he laid aside his kingly ephod. Sometimes you just got to put your reputation aside. You got to put your feelings about yourself and all the respect that you think that you've got aside. And you've just got to show God that you celebrate his presence because there's freedom in that kind of worship. When we dance, it's not a show. It's not Sunday cardio, but we dance in celebration of what God has done for us and because of who he is. David said, you have turned my mourning into dancing. And some of you that have been through some dark nights, the reason you dance is because God brought you out of them. Amen. How many of you feel the Holy Ghost in this place right now? Let's stand together. We're coming to a close. Listen, here's the last one that I want to share with you. Sometimes we express our worship with a sacrifice of praise. Somebody say a sacrifice. Sometimes we bring a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. You know what that means? It means that we worship Him when we feel Him, and we worship Him when we don't. It means we worship Him when we're joyful, and it means we worship Him when we're low. It means that when we've had a great day, we worship Him. And when everything has gone wrong, we come into the house of God, we still worship Him. Because it's not fake worship when you don't feel like worshiping. It's recognizing that who He is is not based on how I feel and where I am right now. And so... Even if everything seems to be going wrong in my life, and maybe I lost my job before I came in here on a Wednesday, he's still worthy of my praise. He's still worthy. He still saved me. He still healed me. He still called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so my praise, sometimes it's a sacrifice, but we bring him the sacrifice of praise because our worship is not based on circumstance. It's based on his character. And so even when I've been going through the storm, he's worthy. When I don't know what tomorrow holds, he's still worthy. And when I don't know what tomorrow brings, he's worthy. When I don't understand 
why he allowed things to happen in my life, he's still worthy. You see, it goes deeper than just the surface. Worship is really the daily life that we live. And it's amazing how different, and I know Pastor will concur with this, how different our services are when people have been praying and seeking God all week. It's really about the day in and day out. Paul said this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your true and your proper worship. And so when I wake up and pray and seek God, that's my worship. It's not just what I do in this house. It's not just about getting clean so I can get into the temple. That's what the Pharisees did. They felt like they had to repent and clean up every time they approached God. But when I wake up in the morning and I spend some time with God, that is my reasonable service. That is my worship. When I choose to speak words of life and not of death, that is my worship. When I teach my children the ways of God, that is my worship. When I attend midweek after a long day at work, that is my worship. When I take time to invest in Christ-centered relationships with others, that is my worship. When I give my tithe and bring forth the first fruits of my increase, that is my worship. So how do I make sure my worship is not empty? I'll tell you how. I exalt the purpose of God in my life and I give myself every single day to walk with Him and to talk with Him. I put no confidence in man, but I lay my life every single day on the foundation of His unerring Word and I trust in His unchanging promises and I lean on His everlasting arms. That's how my worship stays full of substance. Amen. Can we just lift our hands for a moment and can we worship Him, Lord? In the end of this service, we just want to tell you that we love you. We just want to tell you that we praise you. God, we don't want our worship to become hollow and empty. God, we know that you would undo hollow worship if you could undo it. God, we know that you would undo empty worship services where people are unchanged. God, we pray, Lord, that you would inhabit our praises and let us be what we proclaim to be, God. Let us live the life that we proclaim to live. And let us bring you glory in everything that we do, God. In the name of Jesus, can we just give the Lord a hand clap of praise?